Thank you, David, and good, well, good morning and welcome, everyone. My name is David Montgomery. I'm a member here in Kirkpatrick, and it's going to be a real joy to lead you this morning uh, in our service of worship as we welcome new members and as we join together uh, in the Lord's Supper. In a year when a virus has changed our way of life, we gather together to worship the one who sustains all life and who, once we know him, we are never the same again. In a month when we have seen governments crumble and regimes change, we gather together to worship the one who has the government on his shoulders, to whom all rulers are accountable, and whose kingdom outlasts all earthly empires. In a week when sporting legends have emerged or returned, we gather to honour the only champion worthy of worship, who has written the greatest story of all time, won the most glorious of all victories, and offers a prize that will never pass or fade. On a day when we have just been remembering the thousands lost in a terrorist attack and in the subsequent conflicts that arose from it, we gather together to worship the Prince of Peace, who has reconciled us to God and who calls us to be reconciled to one another. At a moment when our world is often marked by exclusion and division, and men and women are burdened with shame and despair, we gather together to welcome new family members and share together in the symbols of forgiveness and hope. So let us worship this life-giving, sovereign, victorious, reconciling God of hope, the Lord of our salvation. Let us praise God. Let us pray. Lord God, each new morning we need your grace. We come sometimes world-weary and broken to be re-energized and healed. We come sometimes joyful and praise-filled to express our love and gratitude. We come always humble and earnestly wanting to hear from you, to meet with you, and to feel again the joy of our salvation. We come always to hear again the good news of the gospel, that you are for us, that you call us to fellowship with yourself and to form us into a radical new community of faith to proclaim your truth to a needy world. So forgive us, Lord, for the sins that we have committed since we were last together, our pride, our impatience, our loose words, our impure desires and selfish ambitions. Nail, nail them to your cross, Lord Jesus, we pray. And assure us again of your full and free forgiveness, not through anything we have done, but by your grace and by your grace alone. Meet with us this morning, we pray, as you met with those disciples long ago by your Spirit, and open our ears to your truth, our hearts to your love, and breathe new life into our very souls, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've begun a new series on the Acts of the Apostles, and we uh, turn now to chapter 2, and the well-known story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Let us remember, this is the Word of God. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Amen. It's always a joy uh, to welcome new members into our church family. And uh, it's a reminder for us all that this is a dynamic fellowship. Uh, It is not a static one. It's one that's always changing. We mourn those who pass on or leave, and we welcome with joy those who join. Uh, Many of you in Kirkpatrick will have had the experience in recent years of a new baby entering the family, and you know that that can be a a time of great joy, but also change because the family unit is never the same when a new arrival comes. Suddenly the whole family changes, and that's the same for us with the welcoming of these new people. We are changed because now we have new brothers and sisters, very much part of our visible fellowship here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. And today is one of those moments where we welcome them in. So first of all, I'd like to call Gareth up just to stand with me, uh, because uh, they are being welcomed on behalf of the Kirk Session. And Gareth, as our clerk of session, is going to call them up. And uh, if you, when you come, just stand along the front as you've been briefed to do. Okay, so this morning we're welcoming into our church family, Kerry Lee. Matthew and Sharon Dore in absentia, Joe Ray, Celia Felix, Ellen Gilpin, Holly Gilpin, Zara Mills, Claire Martin in absentia, and Joanna and Mark Drennan in absentia. Folks, it's great to uh, it's great to see you here. And uh, sorry, it's got this and everything, but. Uh, nonetheless uh, meaningful. And uh, I'm going to put the four questions to you uh, and ask that that you reply with the words, I do. Uh, These questions hopefully will not be a surprise to you. Do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you promise to join faithfully with your fellow Christians in worship on the Lord's Day and to be faithful in reading the Bible and in prayer? 
Do you promise to give a fitting proportion of your time, talents, and money for the church's work in the world? Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to confess Christ openly, to serve Him in your daily occupations, and to walk in His ways all the days of your life? And now I'm going to add a promise for the congregation to say as well. So if you would stand. Because this involves all of us. Do you who now receive these brothers and sisters into the visible fellowship of God's family on earth promise to support them by prayer, encouragement, and example as together you seek by God's grace to follow and serve our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you so promise? May God give us all the grace by His Spirit to keep the promises we have made today. Congregation may be seated, and I'm going to pray for these guys along the frontier. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are sovereign over the church, your body. You formed it, called it, loved it, died for it, and by your Spirit you sustain it. We acknowledge that as your disciples, we are all intrinsically part of your church, and that means that you have called us and loved us and died for us. Lord, we rejoice in the wonder of that grace. This morning, as we welcome new arrivals into the visible fellowship of this branch of your church, we want, as we stand together, to pray your blessing on them. We want to thank you for how you have worked in their lives to bring them to this point. We give you thanks for their families. We give you thanks for their friends who rejoice with them today. And above all, we pray that you would banish from them the temptations and the voice of the evil one who will tell them that they are not worthy and that they are not loved by you. And instead, you would fill them with your spirit of assurance, your spirit, the counselor, the advocate, the one who walks alongside them and is in them. And through that Spirit, we pray that they will grow from strength to strength, being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Maybe just as you turn around, the congregation would give you a vocal uh, appreciation of welcome. Thank you very much. And that you feel at least the virtual handshake of welcome from us into the, into the family. Whenever we stand and make promises together like this, whether it's in baptism, marriage, or church membership, an initial response is, I could never do that. And that's exactly the right response. It's only by depending on God, the Holy Spirit, that any of us can live as He calls us to live. That is nowhere more evident than in the messiness of life together as a church, where we need the Holy Spirit to help us live and grow together. So to conclude this part of the service and prepare us to hear God's Word spoken through Paul, we're going to sing together, calling on God, the Holy Spirit, the living breath, to come amongst us. Good morning, everyone.
Um, as I begin, let me say how wonderful it is to welcome our new members into our church family. I know most of you, all of you probably, have been here a lot longer than I have, but welcome nonetheless. I think we were going to have some pictures of the new members. I don't know if I'm putting the team at the back under pressure there. You don't have those, do you, at hand? Yeah. Let's have a quick look. It's good. You've seen their faces. It's good maybe to put a name to those faces as well. And you'll see some of the folk who are not able to be here. Claire is doing a, a challenge for charity today. Some swimming, running, orange sorts. This is Mark and Joanna. And then we have Holly and Ellen who are here with us. And Kerry and Zara, who you saw as well. And Joe and Celia. And finally, the Dores, who unfortunately at the last minute weren't able to make it this morning, but we send them our well wishes. Thanks, guys, at the back. So this, as Monty said, is a special day in the life of our congregation. And isn't it wonderful that we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2 as we celebrate it together? Because the passage we've heard this morning marks another very special day in the life of the church. I suppose we could call it the very first new member service. On that day, many, many people were grafted into the body of Christ. And today we stand in continuity with that ongoing work of the Spirit as we celebrate the expansion of God's family here in Ballyhackamore. Now, over the past couple of weeks, I've got to know our, our new members just a little bit. But there's one of them whom I knew quite well already. Celia has been a friend of our family for quite a few years now. And I was thinking about Celia when I was reading Acts chapter 2 this week. Because one of the things I know about Celia is that Celia is very gifted with languages. You see, she works as a translator. Her first language is Portuguese, but she speaks English beautifully. And I have to be honest, Celia is my friend, but I'm a wee bit envious of that. I spent five years of my life studying French, and I have pretty much nothing to show for it. What I can remember is almost completely useless these days. I know phrases that might have meant something when I was at school as a 15-year-old, but they're not much use today. Puis-je enlever ma veste, s'il vous plaît, monsieur? If you're not as fluent as me, that means, please, can I take my blazer off, sir? Which we had to do. Not much use today, is it? You know, my problem was... I simply didn't have the commitment to take French further, to really get to know the language in the real world. And that's because there's something about learning a language that I missed when I was a teenager. Learning a language, to be really proficient in it, to be fluent in it, well, it's necessary to go beyond vocabulary lists and grammar tables. A textbook will only get you so far. Language is really about people. And learning to speak a language is really about learning to speak people. Today in our reading, I want us to consider that God wants all of us to speak people. I think that's what this one of the things this passage in Acts is about. We know this story well. There's so much that we could unpack from it today. But at a very basic level, This story is about God, through his Spirit, speaking people. Maybe you've never thought about it that way before. But if you think about it in the context of what we're learning in this series, it might make sense, because last week we introduced this theme that's going to run through Acts, God on the ground. 
And one of the points that I tried to make in that sermon was that in Acts, we see God's desire for people, his desire to be with people. And I ask you to pay attention to this theme as we journey through the book, because we're going to see all the different ways in which the Spirit of God pushes the church to cross borders, to break down barriers, to reach out to people different from them, to speak people. And do you remember we discovered last week that this begins with a local setting. It begins on the ground with people. In Acts, it's first with that Jewish community. And then as the book unfolds, the Spirit moves beyond Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. And don't we see the beginnings of this ripple effect in today's verses? God is here on the ground in Jerusalem speaking to people from all over the known world who will then scatter out. And Luke records for us how the crowds from every corner of the Roman Empire were gathered, all of them Jews or Jewish converts, gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of three pilgrimage festivals. So a festival where folk would gather from all over the known world in the holy city to celebrate it. And the important thing that we sometimes miss is that these are Jewish folk, but they no longer speak Hebrew as their first language. They're a scattered people, and finding themselves in nations across the known world, they have now adopted the language of the people among whom they've been living. They're now natives of other tongues, as we read in the passage. And this means that during Pentecost, Jerusalem became this really interesting melting pot of different cultures, different ethnic groups. The streets would have been humming with a wonderful symphony of voices from, as Luke puts it, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Uh, Did you get that as Monty was reading it? Because Luke really emphasizes sort of the international mix of Jerusalem in this passage. Look again at verse 7 and onwards if you have it in front of you. We read that they were utterly amazed to hear the apostles speak in words they could understand. And they asked, aren't all these here speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? That's a good question, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I have lots of questions when I read this story. What's actually going on here? One of the questions I have is, what what are the sounds actually coming out of the apostles' mouths? You know, I had to study this passage for A-level religious studies. Maybe some of you did too. And those were the sorts of questions we asked. We had lots of debates about it in class. I remember some of my classmates, maybe those from a more charismatic background, were pretty insistent this was a heavenly language that was being spoken and the Spirit was helping folk to interpret it in their own language. Others insisted that it was just simply the the apostles speaking a variety of earthly languages by the power of the Spirit. Some of us, like me, 
we're a bit confused by it all. Because I guess there are clues in the passage and we take the whole of scripture that can point us in different directions. On the one hand, yes, everybody understood the the words in their own language, but we also get this little clue at the end that the language didn't sound entirely earthly or normal. Some said they have had too much wine and Next week we'll see how Peter had to reassure them, it's only nine in the morning, we're not drunk. Now, these questions and debates are interesting and they're fine for an A-level classroom, but I'm not sure they help us very much in answering the question the crowd ask. What does this mean? Because if we allow ourselves to get caught up with the particulars, we end up missing the wood for the trees. What does this mean? Well, very simply, it means God is on the ground. It doesn't really matter about the mechanics of how God's speaking here. The important point is that God is speaking. God is speaking. And he's speaking in a way that we can understand. He's speaking people. Isn't that a truly amazing thing to behold? I mean, this is another example that we've encountered of God's amazing graciousness to us. His being able to be with us where we are reaching out to us to draw us in. And you know, if we stop for a minute to think of all we've learned this summer about who God is, are we not amazed along with the crowd that God should come among us in this way? Here is this holy and sovereign God reaching out with intimacy to speak people. And notice He doesn't do this by speaking in the official language of Israel. He doesn't expect people to do a quick refresher course in Hebrew before they can hear of his wondrous deeds. That's because God doesn't speak Hebrew or Latin or King James English. God speaks people. And he demonstrates his extraordinary determination to accommodate himself to us by speaking words that are in their way extraordinarily ordinary. Because words are ordinary, aren't they? They are crude instruments when it comes to communicating the truth of the universe. No matter how many words we might have in our lexicon, no matter how many volumes of the OED are sitting on our shelves, none of us will ever find the words to fully encapsulate the wonder of God or to fully express the depths of his love to us. John Calvin is a figure who made an appearance in our new members classes this term. And as he often does, he provoked some lively discussion. Now, whatever you might think of Calvin, he was a memorable writer. And in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is his most famous work, he gives us a wonderful metaphor to help us understand what it means for God to speak to us, what's happening when God speaks to us. Because Calvin says that God speaks to us as we might speak to an infant. In his words, God lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Isn't that beautiful? And it's what we discover in the Bible, which is God's word to us. The Bible is one of the ways in which God condescends to us, in which he accommodates himself to us. It's his great stepping down to our level. God 
on the ground, speaking in words that we infants can understand so that we can come to know our Father. And you know, I mentioned Calvin too, because this work of translating the Word of God is a great reformation principle, isn't it? The conviction that everyone should have access to the Bible in their own language, in words they can understand. It's something we have held very dear in our tradition. And yet I think this passage from Acts would spur us to go even further with that tradition. Because the truth is, if you're like me with very meager French, well, you're not called to translate the Word of God into another language. But we are all called to do a work of translation nonetheless. We are called to translate our words so that they actually make sense to an increasingly post-Christian society. And isn't this the great challenge for us today? As we seek to be with God on the ground. Yes, most of the time we, we speak the same language, English, as our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends and family, But at the same time, we speak an entirely different language. Because we speak the language of faith, which as we know has its own unique vocabulary, its own grammar. And I'm not just talking about the theological language that we speak. I'm thinking too of the parlance of congregational culture. KMPC, DG, BB, GB. What do these letters mean to anybody outside these walls? All congregations are the same, aren't they? I've been in lots of placements over the last few years, and every time it's taken me a few weeks just to get my head around the new language that's being spoken. And that's inevitable, of course. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Any organization is going to develop its own speak. But I think that acts won't allow us to be complacent with this. Because the way the Spirit moves at Pentecost is to reach outwards, on the ground, translating the gospel into people. Not expecting people to come to us, or for them to get a good IELTS score before we can welcome them in. And that means we need to think carefully about the way we speak about God. My prayer is that in the church, we would have a natural aversion to cliché and easy platitudes. Because my experience is that when we speak in that way, our words very often have the opposite of their intended effect. They shut ears instead of opening hearts. You'll maybe know by now that I'm a fan of um, Marilyn Robinson. I'm almost embarrassed to mention her again. One of the things I admire about her is how she demonstrates this ability to, to speak about faith without cliché. Her writing has a generosity of expression that invites her readers to temporarily suspend their disbelief and to inhabit a world of faith and wonder. When I was writing my dissertation on her, I came across an interview in which she tells the the president of Wheaton College, Philip Riken, why she writes so much about religion. And here's what she said. One of the reasons I write so much about religion is that it has to be broken out of a kind of calcified language so that it can be actually meaningful to people who are not in the first place familiar with it or who don't find it approachable. Calcified language. Isn't that a great image for tired and stale religious talk? 
Language that has become so hardened, so fossilized, that it seems entirely alien to our lived experience. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit moved powerfully to continue the work Jesus started to break down the calcified religious talk of his day so that no one needed a degree in theology or a Hebrew dictionary to know the truth of God for themselves. And the Spirit continues to move with us as we seek to break free from stale religious talk, to speak words of God, words that make our hearts melt to hear them, words that speak into the depths of our souls, words that articulate that intuition that is buried deep within all of us, though we often forget it. That we are created by God, made to love and be loved by him. And that we cannot know who we are without knowing him first. To know this truth, I think, is what all human beings desire in their deepest being. Whether they're aware of it or not. I really believe that. I believe that all of us on this earth are just trying to find our way home to our father. And Acts would tell us that it's the job of the church to be with people on that journey. Because the Spirit is already there, isn't he? Going before us on the ground. And if we're unsure about that, if sometimes we can get despondent and it it, it appears to us that nobody out there is really interested in God, nobody's asking questions about God, well then it might just be the case that we're not listening well enough. It might be that we've not yet learned to speak people. Because I have a suspicion that the questions people are asking, however unrelated to faith they might seem, are honest attempts to find the right questions, however fumbling their questions might be. And so maybe we need to guide people in this quest, not always giving the answers right away, but helping to ask the right questions questions. Because it's only being with people, it's only by careful listening and paying attention that we can learn to speak people as God wants us to, and therefore speak God's truth as he wants us to. I could finish now with that challenge to you, but if you'll indulge me for just another couple of minutes, I thought it would be helpful to leave you with a real-life example of what this can look like. And I want to do that by sharing a story from a book that I read a couple of summers ago um, by a prison chaplain called Chris Hoke. This is the book here. It it charts Hoke's experience working with violent offenders and gang members in North American prisons. It's called Wanted, a spiritual pursuit through jail, among outlaws, and across borders. You know, I thought this week that would be a pretty good title for the book of Acts, wouldn't it? I'm going to read a section of this book to you now, a section that came to mind as I was reading Acts again this week. It describes one of Hoke's very early experiences taking part in a Bible study in a prison, uh, with a prison group. And there are two men in particular in this story I want you to watch out for. The first is a man called Michael. He's one of the prisoners who arrives at the weekly study brandishing a new tattoo, and that's important for the story. It's a tattoo across the front of his neck. Three simple words emblazoned in in large black lettering. 
and not all of them words I can say in church. But you'll have to do a little bit of work of the imagination to figure out what it is I'm leaving out. And then the second man is Bob. This is Hoke's mentor, the one who's leading the Bible study. Pay attention in particular to Bob and his ability to speak people. Watch how he responds to Michael and his offensive tattoo. And watch how the Spirit begins a work of transformation as a result. Let me read it to you. My first year at jail, I saw a tattoo. I would never forget it on the inmate's neck. It was a Thursday night in our regular circle of chairs in the cold, multi-purpose room. We opened with a prayer as usual, but after Bob said amen, it was silent. We all looked at him to begin with some story or greeting or question for the group, but instead, Bob's brow was furrowed as he lingered for a moment, looking at the neck of the young man seated beside him. There was no judgment in his gaze, rather it was a look I'd seen on his face before, when intently listening to someone tell his or her life story, he tilted his head, and I could hear a soft, hmm. I knew the inked man beside him, Michael Jenkins. On the streets, people called him Trickster. I had visited Michael one-on-one the last time he was in here, and he had asked for private prayer and a visit. He was one of the only Caucasians from the Mexican gang I'd been getting to know lately, behind bars and out on the streets of our town. Michael was the last to lift his head from the post-prayer silence, and so was the last to see Bob looking at him. Michael stared back down at his lap, then peered out again from the corner of his eye. Bob was still fixed on him. What? Michael asked. All eyes were on him. I knew exactly what had caught Bob's attention. I too had seen it as Michael had come in. On the side of his neck, facing Bob, was a glossy new tattoo. F the world, it read. It was not partially hidden under his collar, but it was writ high on his neck in large, clear calligraphy. I'm just looking at your tattoo, Bob answered. Michael was clearly uncomfortable at this point, and he lifted his hand to cover his neck and then stopped halfway. Yeah, he mumbled. Maybe it was Michael was thinking, I knew I shouldn't have come to church since I got this on my neck. Yeah, Bob said finally. I'm just looking at your tattoo there, and I'm thinking, that's something like Jesus' disciples might have said. Silence. Michael's eyes weakly strained to a smile. I knew that Bob was not playing. Bob said, let's open our Bibles too, and he began to flick the onion skin Bible. Where is it? While everyone grabbed a thin New Testament from the ragged rack, I waited. I watched Michael. His eyes darted around as he began to suspect that this was no joke, but rather there was something in the pages we were about to read that were going to speak to him. Here it is, said Bob. First John. Most men are lost when they pick up a Bible, and we usually take a minute or two to help the person find the passage. It'd be easier to paraphrase it or just bring photocopies of the selected text. But Bob, 
He likes to empower those who feel unqualified to crack open the book for themselves. Ultimately, to read it for themselves. And during this moment of shuffling pages, Bob smiled at Michael and asked his name. Michael still shyly answered. Bob then quietly asked whether he, Michael, would read the text for us. And Michael's face went red. But first, Bob started, speaking loudly so the group could hear, Michael, what do you mean by the world? I don't know. He shrugged. And then his eyes shot up with certainty. The system. The system, you know? The courts, the laws, the prisons, cops, society. Just the way the world works, you know, the system. Then he began to read slowly. Michael had been expelled before high school and rarely made it to school thereafter, so he struggled with the words. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, and Michael paused, is not in him. I'm going to stop there. And if you want to find out what happens to Michael, buy a copy, borrow it from me, read it for yourself. But what's important for us to notice is that this quiet, unassuming prison chaplain Bob was patient enough and faithful enough to be on the ground with Michael, speaking words he could understand. And by speaking in words that Michael could understand, by using his language, by not dismissing him, he was able to help Michael discover questions Michael didn't know he was asking. And by beginning where Michael was at, he was able to guide him to something new, giving him a better language to understand the world than the crude words tattooed on his neck, and a better language to understand himself. As we seek to be on the ground with God in Ballyhackamore, may God grant us such a holy imagination. May the Spirit break open our calcified religious talk so that we may speak people, and in speaking people, speak God's truth. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we bring before you today all who are grieving, whether that is through recent bereavement or the memories stirred by the anniversary of untimely deaths through terrorism, whether abroad or here in our own country. By your Spirit, visit them and comfort them, we pray. We bring before you those who are fearful, whether fearful of physical illness in the current pandemic or anxious because of the ongoing mental and emotional effects of lockdown, by your Spirit visit them and reassure them, we pray. We bring before you those who are ill in body, mind, or spirit, remembering them in the quietness of our own hearts at these moments. By your Spirit, heal their bodies, dispel their darkness, revive those whose love for you has grown cold. We bring before you this congregation as it takes another crucial step towards finding a new minister this coming week. Be with the candidates 
and guide the session as they corporately seek your will, that you will help them discern godliness as well as giftedness, character as well as competence. And may all of us in this coming week know the Spirit's power in our lives to work and to witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Monty. Um, I don't have any announcements in particular other than what was in the weekly email. Um, One thing to say, though, is that leaders in charge are meeting this Tuesday evening. So if you're one of those people, you'll have been emailed already about that. But hopefully after that meeting, we will next week be able to give you some firm information about the restart of our various organizations. And in particular for our children and young people, Sunday Club and Bible Class, hopefully we'll be beginning again next week. But look out in this Friday's update for more information about that. Let us prepare to share uh, the bread and the wine together as we sing, Behold the Lamb. In a moment, we'll be sharing with bread and wine. If you did not receive one of the little portable communion sets uh, and you wish to partake, uh, perhaps if you just raise your hand, one of the stewards will ensure that you get one. When it comes to taking communion, uh, the little wafer is under a peel-back cover on top, and the juice, of course, is in the container. This sacrament is open to everyone who loves the Lord Jesus and is in fellowship with any branch of the Christian church worldwide. He is the host, and we are all his guests. Come to the table not because you are strong, but because you understand something of your own weakness. Come to the table not because you feel worthy, but because you have a sense of your own unworthiness. Come not because you love God a lot, but because you love God a little and want to learn to love Him more. Beyond human words, beyond human understanding, this is a holy mystery as God the infinite comes to us the finite. God the eternal comes to us the mortal. God the perfect comes to us sinners and opens his arms of generous hospitality, inviting us not into the courts of some king aloof and remote, but right into the domestic quarters and up round the kitchen table to share in the family meal. In the presence of God himself, we are here only because of what Christ has achieved for us by his death and resurrection. Listen to how Paul describes it. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray.
Lord God, we come humbly and gratefully. Take away from us all thoughts of our own unworthiness as we rest alone on the grace of Christ. And may we partake joyfully as forgiven friends of you, our wonderful Lord and God. Amen. The body of Christ, broken for you, take and eat. The blood of Christ, the sign of the new covenant in his blood, take and drink. Lord God, in deep gratitude for this moment, for these symbols, for these people, we give ourselves again to you. Take us out to live as changed people because we have shared the living bread and we cannot remain the same. Ask much of us, expect much from us, enable much by us, and encourage many through us so that we can live to your glory both as inhabitants of earth and citizens of heaven. Amen. I suppose one of the disadvantages of this way of doing communion is that it can be over so quickly. Uh, but let us take continued time to reflect and sing as we acknowledge now how we rise to serve the living God in the words of the final verse of that hymn. And may the blessing of that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go with us now in the week ahead and forever until he comes again. Amen. <laughs>